Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Dr. Dave Rabin specializes in the treatment of PTSD, depression, anxiety disorders, and substance use disorders. A trauma expert, Dr. Dave was on a mission to help his patients gain more control over their stress response in the moments that they needed it. He focused on leveraging the idea that our sense of touch can signal safety to our brains and that this feeling catalyzes a cascade of restorative effects like lower respiratory rate, lower heart rate, better digestion and sleep and improved mental function, which leads me to the amazing new company he founded with many of my friends, Apollo Neuroscience, which leverages all of Dave's incredible research. Dave, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's a pleasure. So you've spent over 15 years studying resilience and the impact of chronic stress on our lives. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like? What led you to this in general? Yeah. So I think the thing that's really interested me over the years since I was very, very young was seeing people respond to stress in different ways. Sometimes, you know, I saw people, you know, who would, who are the people who were, are, uh, the people we look up to most in life, right? These extreme athletes, uh, at great minds who overcame, you know, when you would listen to their stories about their lives, they overcame tremendous challenges in their lives that pushed them to grow and adapt and to really test what they were capable of as humans. And that really inspired me to think about how some of us don't wind up in, in, you know, making that leap, right? We wind up getting pushed down by stress. And sometimes even the same people who wind up achieving greatness or what we, you know, look at as, as greatness in human society also have other times where they were not able to overcome or had challenge, you know, great challenge, challenges overcoming a stressful experience. And so that, always interested me in seeing people kind of being able to go in these different directions and and kind of led me to start to ask the question, well, maybe stress isn't all bad, right? Maybe there's different kinds of stress and some stress shuts us down and some stress makes us helps us grow. And maybe there's a way that we can think about this differently. And, and so that kind of inspired me to go into the field of mental health and neuroscience of stress, looking at, you know, how do we react to stress? What kinds of things can we set up in our environment? to help us overcome and adapt to stress more effectively, to help us grow, um, to help us really reach our our best selves through the process of life. Um, And uh, ultimately it led me to think about different ways that we could use the tools and the resources we have in our environment to facilitate that process, right? So things like breath work, soothing touch, soothing music, medicate, you know, some, some kinds of medications and substances can be very helpful in this process when used thoughtfully and properly um, and sort of the whole thing, right? All the tools we have available are are vast. We have access to more techniques and understanding and knowledge than we've ever had in the entire course of humanity in this generation right now. And that is an incredible time to be alive. So I really, over time, just started to explore these different areas and, and understand, you know, how do we use all these tools we have available to give us the best lives that we can have? It's very cool. And there's a lot to unpack there. And I want to come back to the the big question, which comes to mind immediately, immediately for me is, you know, adversity strikes, stress happens, and one person is resilient, goes on to do great things, while another falters and never quite recovers. What have, what have you learned about those two different cases and what causes someone to flourish versus someone else to falter? So it's a really good question. I, I think there's, you know, there's there I don't have the answer to that in in completion because there's a lot more we still need to learn. But I can tell you what I've learned from from my work and from all the studying that I've done, which is that 
there are two major factors here that that make an uh, a very critical impact for us, each of us in our journey. The first is the impact of our environment and how supportive and nurturing our environment is. So if our environment and the people around us are people who, for example, support us and, you know, to use a metaphor, like hold our hand through the first day of school, right? And give us a hug when we come back and make sure that we know that we're supported, we're cared for, we're loved unconditionally and supported through the process as hard as it might be, we're going to have an easier time getting through, right? Because we know that we have we have help. We have help along the way. And then it's okay to ask for that help. On the other hand, there are lots of other environments that many of us are in in different situations that are the opposite of that or somewhere in between, right? Where we are kind of tossed in to the pool or without, without a life vest on, right? And just asked, told to swim. And then we're not given any kind of support or handholding. And then when we get out and we've been struggling for hours or days, uh, you know, the person who we look to for support and guidance or mentorship turns to us and says, well, you know, what's wrong with you that you couldn't do this on your own? Right. And so that would be the opposite extreme. And I think that that what we see in the studies of PTSD in particular are that the support that happens after the fact, after the traumatic event, after the challenging experience, the support that comes from our community is absolutely essential in steering, whether that becomes some something that leads to something like PTSD or mental illness versus whether that leads to something that facilitates growth and, and, um, you know, acceleration of our ourselves as our full human, human beings and our full potential. And then the other side of it, which is directly related to the support is what we do ourselves, right? Which is how are we taught to think about stress? Are we taught, which is of course related to the people and the environment around us. Are we taught by our role models and our, and our friends and family to think about stress as a, as something we should avoid at all costs. And, and whenever it happens, we should ask why me, like what's wrong with me that this is happening to me, or are we taught that stress is inevitable and that we're going to face stress? Because if we didn't face stress and challenge in our lives, then we wouldn't have any reason to grow, right? Anybody who does not have to overcome challenge in their lives. We all know some people like that. Those people don't really have a lot of skills in certain areas because they didn't have to develop them. There was no pressure that was kind of nudging them to learn how to do stuff differently because everything just came easy for them. And that is a very different kind of, of life and results in a different kind of mindset around stress and discomfort. Whereas people who adopt and learn to adopt a growth mindset, which is absolutely critical for success in the world is, and what we should, you know, role model for each other and what we teach in therapy is this idea that stress and challenges and adversity are going to happen no matter what you do, right? And if you recognize that and you can admit that to yourself, then you're automatically accepting that it's not because of me that I'm facing challenges. It's because that's just part of life. So then what do I do? What I do is I know that these challenges are going to come. I can't predict the future, but I know it could be challenging. And I do everything I can to prepare myself to make sure that I'm in a, in a state of mind and body that I'll have the best shot at overcoming it and adapting to it and coming out like a shining bright star on the other side. You know, what immediately comes to mind is the debate in parenting right now with children. You know, there, there's a school of thought that and I get it as a parent, you want to protect your child, you, you never want to see your child suffer or get hurt. And, and so there's a school of thought that I would say is definitely a little bit more prone to coddling, if you will, and avoiding stress. And then there are other people who are completely on board with what you said, growth mindset, and they have resources. And unfortunately, you know, maybe the kids aren't exposed to things that <clears throat> that other kids aren't exposed to in terms of, uh, you know, I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like your needs are all met, kids are safe, neighborhood, educated, two parents, all that stuff. So, but, but, but the parents understand, like, we need to have the growth mindset. And so on that end, they'll like, create this artificial stress, you know, they'll drop the kid off in the woods and say, go, for, go, 
there are all these programs they have and we'll create we'll, we'll, we'll manufacture this which i can appreciate both sides of this but and i don't want to spend too much about the kid piece but i do think it's interesting what what's your take on on this so those are also you know on the extremes right of, and, of course and, and, and... <laughs> so, I, so i think the answer like in most situations is that we want to want to find the balanced middle middle ground right the middle ground that sits between those two is we want our children to feel safe being themselves right we want them to know that regardless of what they're facing challenge wise regardless of the hardships of life that they are loved unconditionally they are supported unconditionally and they can always come to us and turn to us as parents when they're struggling right and that if they need something we will not necessarily solve the problem for them but we're certainly not going to make them feel bad about the problem they have we're not going to blame them for it and we're not going to make them not want to talk to us because that is defeating of the purpose right there's the the, the shame that we often accidentally impart to our kids or our, our students is something that is often taught to us but you know it's up to us to recognize that the only purpose of shame is as a teaching tool and once somebody's learned the lessons from making mistakes then you know shame should be discarded and and we should move fo forward with the lessons that we've learned right so i think the the foundation of all this which is definitely not tangential to this conversation it's highly related is safety is at the foundation of all of it and safety comes down to reminding people that they are loved and cared for and that they can be safe in their own skin just being themselves without judging themselves and if we can model that for our children then they can overcome a tremendous adversity they can overcome tremendous hardship because and come out really even much stronger on the other side because they have access to their full self and if we tell if we judge them or we express you know overly overly over, overly critical thoughts or or judgmental thoughts or make them feel like they're not allowed to be themselves then they end up sequestering those parts of themselves away like their sensitive parts in the case of most american men who are taught you're not supposed to cry you're not supposed to express emotion right in public and then all of a sudden we don't have access to those parts anymore because we're taught that they're not serving us or they're not good or they're not valid or they're not worthy and then all of a sudden we don't we don't get the benefits of being empathic sensitive human beings as american men which is obviously a useful tool right so it's this it's this fine balance that's based on making sure our kids are safe and making and then and then allowing them the opportunity to try to figure it out on their own not solving it for them, trying to figure it out on their own, but giving them the guidance that they need along the way to know that they're supported. Well said. You know, I also want to come back to this idea that stress is not, all stress is not bad. And let, let's talk about good stress, bad stress, and also chronic stress. How do you think about defining all of the above? So thinking about what we were just talking about, there's two terms that come from the study of, of this area uh which is u stress eu stress which represents good stress or stress that forces us to grow then there's that's like that's like um you know there's lots of examples of this but like playing on a sports team where you're surrounded by your peers who are many of whom are better than you at that sport and then you see them and you have a challenge then in your mind to push yourself to perform as well as they do right so that would be an example of you stress um there's lots of examples of that having a growth mindset like we were talking about earlier seeing challenge as something that is just another opportunity for grow growth itself and and exploring what we're capable of as human beings can can make any kind of stress you stress because it our mindset helps us to understand if we're safe and we know we're safe and we're supported then we can reframe stressful experiences as opportunities for growth in almost every situation alternatively distress is what we think of as like bad stress so distress being the the opposite of eustress is stress that makes us feel bad about ourselves or stress that makes us feel incapable or makes us feel unworthy 
or like less, less of who we are. Right. And that stress, I would say in general is the kind of stress that results in chronic stress that on a multiple times daily basis or, or all the time consistently for some people that they are under, you know, duress, they're under continuous, almost, it almost feels like oppression, like you're being pushed down and the body responds to it in the only way it knows how, which is the way that it responds to a lion lurking outside your, your cave. Right. And then your sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight system that we all know and love goes out through the roof. And that system is supposed to get us out of a, of an actual survival situation, which means lack of air, lack of hunger, lack of food, lack of water and lack and lack of physical safety. That system is dedicated to that purpose and supposed to get us out of that situation to survival and safety. But when we're answering too many emails or we have too many responsibilities, or there's too much noise around or too much news or what have you, then that system gets turned on accidentally when it's not supposed to. And we perceive survival threat when we don't have it. And then when that persists over multiple days, weeks, months, years, you get the effect of chronic stress, which is very, very distressing to the body, which can ultimately cause disease because the body starts diverting resources that need to go to recovery, sleep, reproduction, uh, digestion, immunity, all those resources get sent to the skeletal muscles, the heart, the lungs, the motor cortex, the fear center of the brain, because the body perceives that we're in a survival threat situation. So it's really a resource allocation problem. Is it fair to say that if one is good at managing the EU stress, that they're probably going to be better at managing the chronic stress, if you will, to some degree. You know, I think about, you mentioned sports. I think that's the best example. I, I, I've said this before on the show. I, I, I learned more about life and resilience and everything than playing basketball and then I learned playing basketball, you know, playing in Harlem when I was a kid and seeing what adversity really looked like, uh, playing in college and being terrible and losing and losing and figuring out at the end how to win. And we started to win. Um, and I think in terms of, of who I am today, it played a significant role. And I, and I think if you are able to manage the EU stress, you develop to your point you have that growth mindset not to say when you have that chronic stress when life feels like it's piling up and, and you feel like it's crushing you that that's real but I, it's safe to say i think if, if you're good at the eu stress you're probably going to your your tolerance level for the chronic stress is probably increased than the average person who who gets stressed very easily and i'll stress very easily in terms of the good stress a little adversity you know they're they, they get the wrong order of coffee in the morning and it ruins their day maybe not the best example but i love coffee and I'm drinking example. coffee so you know that that actually i would be affected by that but a little bit but it would have ruined my day no i mean that's a great example i mean that's like leaving work and then hitting traffic and ruining your day right it's like yes you know it's a it's it's i mean yeah, you're you're definitely on the right track, and I, and I th but I think there's a nuance there that's important because what you're describing, in in essence, is the phenomenon of resilience, right? Resilience is how quickly are we able to bounce back from whatever is knocking us down. If that's what resilience is, then if you think about stress as just information or or situations information and situations coming into our brains and our awareness, then when that comes in, that, that stress could be in the form of email, could be in the form of news, like we were talking about earlier, it could be the form of athletic challenges, it can be the form of uh, traffic, right? Too many responsibilities. All of these things are, are information that is coming into our awareness that is giving us a sense of some kind of stress. Ultimately, when that comes in and we first face it, we address it, there's an opportunity there. And this is also what we teach in, in therapy is that recognizing the this opportunity is critical. This is opportunity is when stress comes in, we have the choice to choose, am I going to think about this as you stress or distress, right? Am I going to think about this as 
hooray, another opportunity for growth. This is going to be hard, but I'm going to be better at the end for it. Or am I thinking about this as, oh God, why me? Another, another thing I have to deal with today. Right. And then, and then the cycle goes down of like self-judgment. What's wrong with me that this stuff happens to me. Right. Everybody, when we grew up, there was a shirt that said uh, the shit happens shirt. You probably remember, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, why does this shit always happen to me? Right. Well, shit just happens. So either you accept that and you turn your stress into use <sighs> right off the bat, or you deny it and resist it. And as the Buddhists say, you create suffering by resisting the inevitable. The inevitable being we will be stressed. So it's about just, so a lot of it is, is trying to limit what we're exposed to and what comes in so we're not overwhelmed and overstimulated all the time creating the environment ideally as much as we can that we want to be in that makes us happy and fulfilled and joyful and supported. But also what do we do when that stuff comes in? Do we choose to look at it as a growth opportunity or we choose to look at it as an opportunity to judge ourselves for not being good enough or for not being better than we should, as as good as we should be, or we think we should be, or we're taught to be right. And that is very empowering for people because most of us don't even realize we have that choice. You know, I'm not a boxing fan or a Mike Tyson fan, but there's a great quote. Everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. <laughs> great quote. <laughs> but I think that it's, it's you know, and at the same time, right, it's what do you do when you get punched in the face? You still have a choice as 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 oppressive and unpleasant as that might be. You still have a choice, right? You have a choice to punch back, to run, to try to tactfully appeal to the person's sense of humanity and maybe be diplomatic, right? I can't tell you in a hypothetical situation which is going to be the best option, but the point is that I think we often forget is that there is still a choice. We still have the ability to choose the outcome of the situation in some respects. And sometimes that choice has to be made in a fraction of a second in this particular punch in the face scenario. Yes. Assume, oh. Assuming assuming we're in the ring and we're all professional boxers, of course. Right. <laughs> right. right. And and other times, you know, we have, you know, 30 seconds or, minutes <laughs> or hours to make the decision. And so it's, but it's really about, about remembering that we have a choice by being aware of what's happening and being aware of that choice. And so this is actually why I love the work that we do so much is because as therapist and as a psychiatrist, uh, you know, the tools that we use and everything from the natural tools like deep breathing and soothing touch and meditation and mindfulness are all about expanding awareness to empower us to choose. And as soon as you start to do those things, you realize that the body and the mind are actually much more powerful than we were maybe taught they were, and that you have more access to tools that can help you. And then, and for those who have never learned how to do that on their own, like the breath work and the meditation and the and, and the yoga and these things, you know, there are other tools that you can use like Apollo and psychedelic assisted therapy and other things that are awareness expanding tools. But uh, but but it's it really goes back to that awareness, which is not and training our awareness mindfully, which is not new to us. This is stuff that's existed for thousands of years. So, in terms of tools and data, you know, something which which I look at all the time is heart rate variability. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about how HRV can provide insight into? our ability to manage stress. To me, it's a clear signal of how stressed I am or how much sleep I've had, or if I've, or if there's an illness that that's coming on or I'm coming out of it, that's my take. What, what's your take on what we can learn from HRV? I, I mean, I would say that's accurate. I think the challenge with HRV is how more about how you measure it and, and how often you measure it because not all devices measure HRV with equal accuracy or precision. So um, in the lab, we measure it with an EKG machine where you're sitting still wired up, you know, for th one to three minutes to get an accurate measure with you not moving or doing anything because any movement or anything you do or think about can 
make your HRV change. So in, in that respect, the devices that tend to have the most accurate HRV measurements on the consumer level are things like Aura Ring, which has an algorithm that makes sure that your HRV, I have one too, but I, I yeah. put it on today. Um, but the HRV makes sure that, or, or shows that your, um, that your, uh, in terms of the aura ring, it's, it's only assessing it at rest. So when right. you're not moving, that's when it starts to check, to measure your heart rate and your HRV. And so then you have an average over, over time. And then that average gets trended over time. So in the lab, you can look at HRV in the moment in the real world, HRV in the moment is very hard to measure because we're always doing stuff. We're always moving. We're always thinking we're not at rest that often, unless we're in bed, not moving at all. And so um, it's so that there's a challenge there and aura ring is probably the most accurate consumer wearable for that. But to your point, it is HRV is one of the most accurate measures of resilience in the body. Um, and it's impacted by things like getting great deep sleep, critically important for HRV. It's probably the most important. And then second to that is like soothing touch, breathing, soothing, uh, intentional breathing, uh, soothing music can do it, yoga practices, same things we're talking about before, meditation, mindfulness, float tanks, right? All of these kinds of practices that help us to restore a sense of control and balance in our bodies are all things that boost vagal nerve tone or parasympathetic tone in our redirecting resources to the recovery nervous system, which then slows our heart and then increases our HRV. And that was actually part of how we discovered Apollo because people with PTSD have very, very low HRV. How do you quantify very low just to get people baseline? Numbers. It's different for everyone, but sure. very low being like less than 20. Wow. So if you're in the less than 20 range, then that means your, your body is in a state of very, very poor recovery. So that means you're more likely to make mistakes more likely to perform inconsistently, cognitively and physically, more likely to get injured because you're going to make more likely to make mistakes and you're less able to focus consistently and you're probably getting pretty poor sleep or you have some emotional or other stressors around in your life that are distracting you and putting you into a stress state, but you're not recovered and you're not going to be in a state to take on really, you're not going to overcome challenge well in that state. So those are metrics that elite athletic coaches and trainers use in the military use to determine whether or not somebody is going to be a starter or ready to go on a mission. Um, because if you're in a state where your HRV is that low or your HRV is in your bottom 20% of what your HRV normally is, then you're probably not in a position to perform at your peak. So if under 20 is 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 low and not ideal what what's what's great and, and again it varies everyone's individualized but but if you could give us a sense of the opposite end of the spectrum so the nice interesting thing about hrv is there's no peak right so you can literally have your your hrv can be as we don't you know it could be as potentially high as as it can go we this is the idea of of unlimited potentially unlimited human potential right we know what the stressed humans look like. Now the question is that I think is even more exciting is what do the ultimate humans look like? Right? <laughs> what do we look like when we are in a position of complete safety that we at least have, have uh, you know, feeling safe in our own skin? At least we've gotten to that point so that we can give ourselves the opportunity to explore what our full potential could be. HRV is kind of an interesting metaphor for that because it doesn't have a peak. I know people who are in their 60s who are, you know, former athletes and military folks who have their HRV in like the 230s on a regular basis. Like these people are fine specimens of humanity and it's so impressive. Um, wow. And so, you know, the you know, who knows how how good it could be. The point is we want it to trend up. So regardless of where your HRV is at with any of these devices that you're measuring it with, the most important thing is that it's going up. If it's going down consistently over time, that means that you're, something you're doing or multiple things you're doing in your life are not contributing to your recovery or they're literally just taking away from your recovery or you're performing too hard and you're not recovering enough. So it's a sign of how balanced we are between, as traditional Asian Chinese medicine practitioners talk about yin and yang, right? Output versus input. If our output is too great, 
and it's not balanced with enough taking in, then we are going to have unbalanced lives and that's going to be reflected as a low HRV. And inverse relationship with resting heart rate. You want HRV to continue to be going up, resting heart rate continuing to be trending down. Correct. And, and so your heartbeat, the more yes. time between each beat and therefore the more opportunity there is for variability. And so let's segue to, you know, we're spending a lot of time. We, we talked about aura, stress, sleeps, you know, let, let's go to stress and sleep for a minute. Uh, when we are stressed, because look, as, as, as we're all acknowledging, stress happens. You can't avoid it. You can't eliminate it. You got to manage it. And when you are stressed, how do you ensure you get a good night's sleep? Because it, it happens. It's going to happen. And it does affect your sleep. It affects my sleep when I'm really stressed and I'm a pretty good sleeper. What can we do when we know we're stressed and we're dreading going to sleep because we know it's not going to look good? <laughs> so, so a couple different things, right? I think that if you think about what HRV can teach us about this, when we're stressed, our heart rate's going up and our HRV is coming down. So that means that our body is taking resources away from our recovery and rest nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, and diverting them to skeletal muscles and diverting them to the heart and the lungs and diverting them to the motor cortex of our brain that, that is responsible for movement and getting out of the situation and our fear center, all of which are not useful when we're trying to enter the vulnerable state of deep sleep where we are potentially paralyzed, right? Deep sleep and REM sleep, we are defenseless effectively, physically defenseless. So if we want to be able to enter one of those deep restorative states, then we have to remind ourselves as challenging as it might be, or as much as we have not learned to do it, we have to remind ourselves that we're safe, right? We have to remind ourselves that we are safe enough to be able to fall asleep. And so when, and then when we do that using things like deep, slow, intentional breathing, uh, I have, I have a really, I, my favorite technique is, is if, you know, it's relatively simple, it's just breathe the way you breathe when you're sleeping, right? Long, slow inhales, hold for a second, long, slow exhales. It can be about five seconds in hold for a second, five or six seconds out. And you just keep doing that and try to fill your lungs as deep as you can and, and empty them as much as you can on every exhale. And then your body starts to wind down and you're starting to tell your body, Hey, you're safe. You're safe enough to pay attention to this breath. That means you're safe enough to fall asleep, right? Soothing touch, whether you apply it to yourself or you have a loved one also does the same thing. Um, that's why it's harder to sleep without, without blankets, right? Because the, the blankets give you a sense of comfort that allows you to feel soothed and why it's often easier to sleep with somebody else um, rather than by yourself because you feel soothing it feels safe having that contact with another person cuddling with you right or an animal or a pet right these kinds these kinds of experiences are, are relatively universal to human nature i think those those especially the breathing and the soothing touch you do it to yourself or or somebody else um or and one of the other techniques that's my favorite is called um progressive muscle relaxation, which is where you basically reach out with your fingers and toes as far as you can, and you stretch them as far as you can, like a reaching stretch while you're lying down in bed. And then you stretch for five seconds as you breathe in. And as you relax them, you breathe out. And then you kind of repeat that cycle going all the way up your body, just drawing your awareness away from your thoughts about earlier that day or things you need to do the next day or wherever else your mind could go because our minds can be anywhere and then drawing your attention back into your body which is enjoying the comfort of your sleeping bed nest area and so but these are again all difficult challenges right so if you haven't learned how to do these techniques starting to do them can be tricky it could take time they don't always work right away they can work fairly quickly but it can take a little bit of time sometimes a couple of days to get the hang of it um, and so that's why we developed Apollo because Apollo gives the benefits of soothing touch to the body by which it can be measured by increasing HRV. Um, and so breath work up until Apollo was developed, there were, there were no wearables that increased HRV um, through this method of delivering touch to the body or through any method. And 
So we evaluated the breathing and the way that soothing touch works and the way that movement stretching works and, and all and biofeedback and all these things. And then we figured out that why do those work? Well, they work because they increase, they improve the balance of the stress response and the recovery response in nervous systems by helping us feel safe and in control. And you see that because HRV goes up very quickly. So what if we could create a wearable that could deliver some of those benefits for people without them having to do anything? Because most people don't know how to do this stuff. I never learned right. how to do any of this stuff. So why should we expect, if I'm a doctor and I never learned how to do this, why should I expect my patients who have, you know, to, to learn how to do this as kids? It's hard. It's legitimately hard. And so Apollo came out of that understanding of HRV and, and just how to help people sleep better because it's legitimately challenging. I, I love it. And I, and I want to spend a, a bit more time on touch and segue to, to Apollo and, and the science because we don't talk about touch enough in the conversation of stress. You know, breath work, got it. You know, stretching, yoga, exercise, got it. Nutrition plays a role, you know, got it but we don't talk about touch. So what, what is the, let's talk about the science behind touch and segue to Apollo. Cause I, I think it's so powerful. So the science behind touch is one of my favorite subjects because it's unfortunately often neglected in modern society, especially the Western world, like the UK and the Americas. Um, but it is as old as the oldest mammals right? The, if you go back to the most ancient mammals, they all nurse their young and cuddle their young to provide sense of safety to them. And that's in, and, and the nervous system that we have evolved in a way that is stemming back, you know, all of those many millions of years to these ancient animals where we have very tightly, tightly wired nervous systems that go from our skin all the way up to the center of our brains that deliver signals that say, if you're effectively, if you're safe enough to feel this soothing, gentle feeling right now from someone that you trust, like a parent or a friend, then you can't possibly be running from a lion right now, right? There can't, the, my, our bodies would not allow us to pay attention to the feeling that a pleasant feeling of somebody holding our hands or giving us a hug. If there was a bear outside the tent, we would be running as quickly as we could and we would not be enjoying that hug, right? So, so the body has highly evolved these pathways, which is critical to understand because again, this is not unique to humans, right? Humans are a derivative of every single animal that came before us. And so we have these tightly wired neural networks and Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel prize in 2000 demonstrated this, which that we, you know, our way we form memories goes back to these ancient sea snails that are 300 million years old. And they practice safety and they practice fear. And when they practice these experiences, they try to train their, their neural, neural networks trained to, to favor safety and to avoid fear. And so touch is, is one of the most highly evolved ways that is what we call pre-conscious. We don't need to think about it. It just happens when you are having a terrible day and somebody gives you a hug you instantly feel better and you don't need to think about it, right? That is kind of magical and miraculous, but it's also hardwired into our nervous systems and has decades of scientific research behind it. And I, I don't think it was until the onset of COVID in 2020 that this really became a topic that people were interested in uh, at large scale because social distancing made it obvious that this was something we all desperately need more in our lives. So on that note, we're talking about in the context, I think, of family, of loved ones, a little bit more intimate touch. What about the, the casual touch, the, the everyday handshake, you know, it, it, in the context of, of work or the casual hug uh, to a neighbor? Because that is, is, I'm assuming, benefit there as well. For sure. I mean, it facilitates human bonding, right? For it, it facilitates a safe interaction between you and me, which we could also have with eye to eye contact, believe it or not, even over Zoom, like we're having right now, I'm looking at you in your eyes and you're looking at me in my eyes. And so there is a bond here that happens where we help each other feel safe enough to have this conversation without feeling judged. Well, right? sort of, sort of. So one thing I'm going to point out, I, I don't know if you know, I, I'm 
you might be aware of this. You're technically, when you're doing Zoom, the camera, you're, I'm looking at you in the screen, but the camera is a, is above me. So it's like, we're kind of eye to eye, but not, is that, or, or am I overthinking? This? No, no, you're, you're right that you're, you're right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying this is as good as being face to face. Of course, of course. Nothing of course. is good as being face to face and, and holding hands or hugging and having like a real authentic human interaction. But what's interesting is, because I do almost all my therapy over Zoom these days, and that I am able to build in a very short time, extremely powerful, trusting relationships with my patients to the point where we don't have to be in person to get the same outcomes we get being in person. And that is pretty incredible, right? Yes. And and so I think the idea is that it's that you don't have to be in person to get it and it doesn't have to be touched to get the empathy and the safety. But when you are in person and you have the eye to eye contact face to face and you have the hand shaking, the hand holding the human contact face to face, the the touch is is extremely important because it reminds us that it's okay to be vulnerable together. Right. And that it reminds us that despite we, how different we might seem or appear to each other on the surface, that we are ultimately all human before we're anything else. Right. I am a guy wearing a plaid shirt with glasses and you're a guy wearing a T-shirt with no glasses, but we're still human first before we're any of those other things. And we have a tendency to forget that. And when we forget, because we've had so much distance between each other, and when we forget that, we start to feel unsafe. And our brains are start to say, oh, well, this person's new, this person's different. Uh-oh, new and different, that might be unsafe. If I'm in a situation where we can hold hands or look at each other in the eye face to face, my body quickly remembers that we're still human. But if we're far apart and we don't have that opportunity, it's and I'm also really stressed out in my regular life, it's easier for me to accidentally confuse those differences with potential threat. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I want to come back to how Apollo works. I think it's, again, such a powerful tool and walk us through, you know, the, the development of it and, and how does it work? Like, how, do, how does one use it? Because I think it is an incredible tool. You know, I think we've clearly established HRV is something we all need to think about in terms of how we how we manage stress. And there's tons of tons of data out there in terms of, you know, its role in longevity. And so walk us through how Apollo Neuro works. So along the lines of this whole conversation about safety and the benefits of soothing touch, we, and empathy, I was seeing patients working with people with, who are many of whom were veterans with PTSD, substance use disorders, treatment resistant mental illness who were really struggling and and the treatments that we were giving them were just not working for a lot of them. You know, I think the statistics for PTSD show that less than 30% of people who get the the standard of care treatments are not actually getting better long term, which is not a good statistic. That means over 70% of people are still symptomatic long term after getting the treatments that we're taught to give and so you know, that being said, when they're in the office with me or with my other talented colleagues who are really good at this empathy eye to eye contact thing, we're able to give them so much of a sense of safety and, and acceptance and trust with us in person that, or in some cases over Zoom, that they are able to start to feel like they can trust themselves again and feel safe in their own skin based on modeling what it feels like to trust us. Right. So we, build a trusting relationship with them. They remember what trust feels like, and then they learn to trust themselves again. And that is what we're doing in the office with therapy, just by providing a non-judgmental space to listen to them undividedly without, ju without judgment, with complete acceptance. Then they leave the office. <laughs> Big problem, right? Because they're going back into the regular world and they're surrounded by all the same stressors they were surrounded by before they came into the office and they're like, oh, Dr. Dr. Raven's not with me anymore. I'm on my own. Right. And then they have to figure out how to restore that sense of safety for themselves, which they probably haven't mastered the techniques that I just taught them an hour before. And so they're on their own and they're like, okay, well, I'm going to go back to the old way I was doing things most of the time, because that's easier because I've trained those habits and those don't really work long-term, but they make me feel good right now. So I'm just going to do it. Right. And so what we were trying to do when we developed Apollo 
was how do we tap into the tools that actually work for people and the techniques that actually work that are science-based, like soothing touch, like soothing music, like empathy, and understanding that those increase activity in our safety response nervous system in our brains, which then increases recovery nervous system activity and decreases sympathetic fight or flight activity, even in the moment, how could we, what could we do to create something we could give people take out of the office? That was the origination. Uh, and so that ended up leading us down this path of exploring soothing touch. And we mapped out, I mapped out the entire neural pathway of how touch impacts the emotional brain. And when I was at the University of Pittsburgh and uh, in the Department of Psychiatry, and effectively, when you are touched in a loving way, when you are experiencing soothing vibration or a massage, what or holding a pet, what happens to your brain, right? There's something that's actually happening that's telling you I'm safe right now. And it's actually the same thing that happens when you take a deep breath. And it's the same thing that happens when you do biofeedback. And so we started to look at that. And as we saw these similarities, we realized that there are ways potentially to replicate the benefits of soothing touch and deep breathing on the go by figuring out what the touch receptors in our skin like to feel when we feel safe and sending it to them with vibration. And so we explored this quite a bit for many years uh, between 2014 and 2019, 2018, 2019. And we figured out very, very specific frequencies of sound that you can, that are, it's the same sound you can hear, but it's, it's just below the normal range of hearing. So it's more like what comes out of a subwoofer. So it's like deep, deep bass that we figured out you could deliver to the skin in very, very specific uh, ways, almost like a song for your skin that the body, the skin feels, and then the body and sends to the brain and the emotional part of our brain says, this feels safe. This reminds me that I can, if I can pay attention to this feeling, then I can't be running from a lion right now. And then it retrains us to feel safe in, in more situations in our day-to-day -day lives as we use it and take it into our lives. It reminds us constantly, hey, I'm out in traffic right now. Normally, I might choose to flip out or start beeping my horn or start yelling at people, but I don't need to do that. I have a choice, right? If I'm actually safe right now, and you know, maybe even five minutes late to work is is not good, but it's not the end of my end of the world. I'm not going to make decisions behind the wheel that could actually be the end of my world, right? And it reminds us that we have the opportunity to choose our outcome, like we were talking about earlier. And so, as we started to see that, and we started testing in clinical trials, that's actually what the trials showed. And then we put it out into the real world, made prototypes, and that's actually what people started telling us. And then that became the product. Apollo that we released uh, to the world in 2020, right before the pandemic surprised us all. And and we all need it. Where we're, I'm um, having success trying it is is the witching hour when we're trying to put our kids to bed, when they're all amped up and things can yep. get quite ugly. Yeah, <laughs> that's real. So, it is real. It is real. And, and so, can you just walk us through like what it looks like? You know, like where do you, how do people use it? You know where do they where do they put it and so forth and integrate it. You know you mentioned aura pretty straightforward. Put it put it in your hand. This is actually pretty straightforward too. But you can just walk us walk walk through what what that looks like. Sure. So so Apollo's is really different than these other wearables in that it's not a tracker. So if you think about wearable technology in three generations, the first generation of wearables is like the the tracker trackers aura Apple Watch. And these other devices that are just taking data from you and then showing you your data. And then you have to interpret the data, process the data, interpret it, and then decide what to do about it. And then yep. on it, right? Then there's the next generation like Muse and Peloton and other things that are tracker trainers. So they're taking data from you and they're giving you something to do to train yourself to do it better, like Muse, where it's giving you data about how well you're meditating and then it's asking you to do something to meditate better, right? However, we're kind of in a situation right now where we have complete data overload and many of us don't have the bandwidth to take on more data and to then take more time out of our day to act on that data. And so part of the reason why we developed Apollo was to be a the actual, to take the data, process it for you, and then make the change for you. So this is the first of the third generation of wearables, which looks like this. 
and you can wear it anywhere on your body because it's just delivering sound waves to your body. It doesn't need to be on your skin. It can go through clothing. Um, I personally like to wear it for for sleep on my ankle, which is the favorite amongst most of our users. But we also have a clip that you can see here. And this clip allows you to clip it on to anywhere you like. I wear it now. Now that the clip came out, I wear it on my chest um, during the day. And then I wear it on my ankle at night. But I think the favorite spots are looking like chest, belt, bra for women, um, and then ankle and wrist. And there's a strap also that you can wear it on your ankle or wrist with. Um, personally, I'm an ankle and chest guy. But interestingly, <laughs> interestingly the, studies, the studies show that location doesn't matter. The body, as long as you can feel the vibration, the body feels it as soothing and then interprets it and does the work for you, which is really, really interesting because we don't have a lot of tools that do the work for us. No, you don't. And I, look, I love the gadgets and I love the tools. I love my aura ring. I love my whoop, but they can't improve my heart rate variability or improve my sleep. They can tell me my, my data, my numbers, how I'm performing, but I'm fortunate where I know a lot of experts in the space and they've helped me interpret the data because you need actionable insights. Uh, but then there's more work to do. What What you do is so unique is... I would safe to say most people are stressed. Most people want to, when you're talking about an ex Navy SEAL has got an HRV of 200, I think it proves the point. No, no, no matter where you are, if you're 20 or 120, you can do better. You want to do better. Here's a tool which you can use relatively seamlessly. It's not invasive. Put it on your leg when you go to sleep, put it in your shirt and can help improve your HRV, which overwhelming data suggests we're all better off in terms of longevity, the higher HRV, the better. Right. And it's not just doing it in the way you described, and it's not just HRV, right? HRV is interesting as a metric that we track to show how our resil how resilient we are on the go, right? That's an important metric, but that is the outcome of, of being healthier and getting better sleep. And so what we're seeing with Apollo that's really interesting is you can toss your Apollo on in the moment of stress because we know stress decreases HRV. And in the moment of stress, you can boost your HRV by anywhere from 10 to 20% in the moment of stress, which will have a, a what we've seen in the studies is will have a, a proportionate increase in your cognitive and physical performance of 10 to 20% just by calming the body in the moment of stress. What's even more, that was from our study at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and another study that just came out showing that it happens with ath athletes um, post-workout. What's even more interesting is that actually persists over time. So if you, we did a study when COVID happened, all of our sleep, all the sleep labs we were planning to work with shut down indefinitely. And so we thought, well, we have people who use these guys, Aura Ring. Aura Ring is the most accurate sleep tracker and health and cardiovascular health tracker. What if we send an email out to all our users and say, ask them how many have Aura Rings and want to share their data with us so that we can make our product better. It turns out people actually thought that was cool. So we had, we have now over 1500 people sharing their Aura Ring data with us for years. And we're able to compare what their bodies look like and their sleep looks like before Apollo versus after. And when they use Apollo and when they don't. And that's been really interesting because we've been able to see that over three months of use of Apollo, consistent use, which is consistent use is defined as having it vibrating on your body about three or more hours a day, five or more days a week, just vibrating on your body. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to do anything. That little extra touch sensation to your body gives you up to 30 more minutes of sleep each night. That's up to three and a half hours of more sleep every week just by having something like this vibrating and sending safety signals to your body on three or four hours a day, right? And that sleep is deeper and more restful, 19% more deep sleep, 14% more REM. And we also see reductions in resting heart rate by about 4% and HRV increases that are cumulative around 11% HRV improvement. So this is showing just that the story around, around safety and touch is so consistent because the body's responding reliably. And, and to give you an idea of how much those numbers are impactful, that's comparable to 
what we see in the literature from somebody adopting a new exercise or meditation routine over that same three-month time frame. Wow. So every parent, including myself, is asking, can I give this to my child? Yes. As, as I had my three-year-old sneak into bed last night and kick me in the head and, <laughs> you know, I, I got a decent sleep score, but my, my, my deep sleep was definitely compromised last night. Thanks to my beautiful, wonderful three-year-old. Yep. I know that that is, uh, <laughs> um, we have some of our best friends have a two and three-year-old right now. And that's like a, a real, a regular struggle for them. Um, but yes, you can use it on kids. Uh, we have a lot of parents that use it on their kids. Um, we Part of the reason why we developed it the way we did was using sound is because sound is is in the in the range that we use it, which is just below the audible range in the tact, what we call the tactile range, the range that we feel. And at the volumes we use it, which is very, very low, it's virtually universally found to be safe. So there aren't really side effects from known side effects from using sound the way that it's used with Apollo. It's like having low ambient music around all the time, right? So that is really nice because people who, for, for vulnerable populations like children, a teen, you know, children, pregnant women, elderly adults, um, th those people are, and people who are not good medication candidates, you know, those people need something for them too. And those were a lot of our patients. So the people who just don't do well with medication and, sure. you know, if we can give them something else that they are in control over that can give them some of the benefits of just feeling better than, and sleeping a little better then that could potentially hold off, you know, prevent a lot of, of the downstream negative consequences we see from overusing or overprescribing medicine or supplements that are not still not getting to the heart of the problem, which is that we're not feeling safe enough to fall asleep. It's truly revolutionary. Um, <laughs> I think we all need it. So, you know, in closing, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned, you know, trying, trying to, you know, working on studies. I am curious of studies you're about to embark on or studies that, that, that you're, you're paying attention to or something recently published, what's the most exciting? Do you want the most exciting from a standpoint of kind of new therapies or most exciting about changing the way we think about the field? Cause there's a couple. All, give it to me all the above. Well, so this recent study just came out from the university college of London that is what's called an umbrella study. Uh, this came out July of this year. Uh, an umbrella study is a study that looked, it's a, it's a, it's called a meta-analysis of meta-analysis studies. So it's like over a hundred thousand people were included in this study. And what they found was that in fact, there is no evidence to support that there is a chemical imbalance or a serotonin issue in people who have depression. And in addition to that, people who have depression are more likely to be suffering from unprocessed trauma than they are to have a chemical imbalance, which is what most of us have been saying for years. But the pharmaceutical companies have been so many of them have been have so heavily propagated this idea that there's a chemical imbalance with, because, you know, that gets medicines out into the world. And of course they're conducting studies that are in their best interest, right? That's just right. the way that it works. But uh, I think that we're finally now having large enough population studies that are very, very exciting, which are showing, Hey, yes, these medications are great for some people, right? But it's not because there's a chemical imbalance. It's because they're allowing people an opportunity to feel comfortable enough to be able to overcome some of these challenges they're facing. That being said, if you if there's not a chemical imbalance, it means you're not born with your depression, right? You have the ability to change your, your future and how you feel. And that is so empowering for our patients. And it's so exciting to see that that's yeah. finally coming to the surface. Well, we'll also think about if you're treating someone with depression and you're operating under that assumption, and you're prescribing an SSRI, 
and it's not a serotonin problem and that person doesn't feel better, you talk about the feeling of hopelessness, nothing works for me. And there's often, there's often a side effect. And you think about the, the tiny, tens of millions of people who are affected by this, it accentuates the problem. Yeah. Try hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions. Yeah. Mental health epidemic we're existing, you know, so it's. Yeah. And it, and it's really important, right? And this is where psychedelic medicines come in too, because that's the other breakthrough that's at the forefront of mental health and psychiatry, because it's the first time we've ever had tools that help us to treat somebody's mental illness in a way that is long lasting with just a few doses of medicine right? Most medications we are taught to use in mental health, we are taught to prescribe to be used one or multiple times a day, every day, potentially for the rest of your life, right? That's like telling somebody that you have a terminal illness that you're treating. Mental illness is not a terminal illness, right? It's not going, it's not terminal. What it, it's not necessarily for life. If you know that you don't have a chemical imbalance you were born with, then that means that there are things you can do to change your outcomes, right? If you know that three doses of MDMA with 42 hours of psychotherapy can take 67% of people with treatment-resistant PTSD and get them to a point of no longer being symptomatic within one year's time that potentially persists for much longer than one year, then you can change your outcomes right? There is nothing more powerful than being able to understand that you can change your outcomes. And then, because that fosters a belief in ourselves, it fosters a belief in our ability to have a say in our own lives, right? To actually step into the driver's seat of our own lives and take the wheel. What could be more powerful than that? And and so on that note, you know, when I was a, a in college, I participated in psychedelic uh, medicine in the context of in my fraternity, drinking heavily and listening to the Grateful Dead, which was an, an interesting experience. Some of it was good, some of it was not so good. But suffice to say, it was not under uh, physician supervision. <laughs> physician supervision at all. Uh, with that said, I, I do think it's important. I want to spend a moment here because. I, I think this is so promising, but in my opinion, the message isn't, you know, go to Tulum and then, you know, hook up with the first shaman you see at the airport and go for it. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit? Because I think it's also on, you know, it, 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 without supervision, this is also potentially unsafe and, and harmful to your mental health. So the qu question I've actually been getting on the personal level is that a lot of people are interested in this. A lot of people have trauma. A lot of people have unresolved issues. And it's a great treatment when other treatments have been exhausted. You know, they're doing therapy. It's just not working or what have you. So where does the average person go? If they're, if they're, if they're thinking, I'm a candidate for this, where do they go? So if they're going to do this type of work, they're doing it in the right way under the proper medical supervision. Uh, that's a great question. So I, where, I mean, where I would send my loved ones, if they were struggling, I would send them to somebody who does ketamine assisted therapy or ketamine assisted psychotherapy. Um, if people are looking for providers that, that do this work, you can go to ketamines, uh, ketamine therapy, psychotherapy associates, kpa.org, I think. And there's a list of providers there. Um, and if you go to my website and reach out to us, which is apollo.clinic. Um, we do, we provide ketamine assisted therapy in my clinic, and we can also recommend you to other people in your area if we can't serve you. Um, that is the gold, what I would say is the gold standard right now for legal access to psychedelic therapy. Um, most other psychedelic medicines are not legal at this time. So if you wanted to access MDMA assisted therapy, you'd have to contact maps.org, which is a multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. And then you'd have to enroll in a clinical trial, um, which is Challenge, which takes time and it's not a quick process. Um, so if you're really struggling with depression, PTSD, um, anxiety disorders don't, don't do as well with, uh, with these treatments right now, it takes a little more work, but particularly PTSD and depression, there's a lot of evidence to support, uh, ketamine assisted therapy is probably being the best option for folks. Yes. Um, and so I would highly recommend that. There's also a lot of ketamine you can get without therapy, 
I would not recommend that so much. I would say do it with therapy. You will have better outcomes that are longer lasting. Um, and, and to your point about these occasionally being dangerous for people, um, that's a big part of my practice is seeing people who have misused or, or had people misuse psychedelics with them uh, and helping them come back to themselves again. And so it is a real thing. And, you know, I think the way to think and the way to really understand psychedelic medicines is what they are, what's called non-specific amplifiers of awareness. So if you think about our awareness as the tip of an iceberg sticking out of the ocean, right? There's a thousand or a hundred thousand or a million more iceberg below the surface of the water that we are not aware of on a regular basis, right? The part we're aware of is just what we see sticking out of the water. So when you take a psychedelic medicine, then you're all of a sudden opening yourself up to become aware of everything that's beneath the surface of the water. That could be good stuff or that can be really uncomfortable stuff. And so if you're not in an environment that is safe and trusting with a person who's going to make sure that you feel unconditionally accepted and loved and supported through that experience when you do face uncomfortable stuff, because you will, everybody does, then you could accidentally amplify your fear or your insecurity rather than amplifying your sense of safety and self-acceptance, right? And that and that's critical. It's a non-specific amplifier of awareness. So the goal, the whole point of, of this work is that it's psychedelic assisted therapy. It's it's not psychedelic drugs, use them, right? It's psychedelic assisted therapy. The psychedelic medicine is amplifying your awareness to get better outcomes in therapy. And the therapy is actually what is moving things along in the direction that you want them to go. Well said. Dr. Dave, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. So we are going to be taking Thanksgiving this Thursday off. So there's going to be no episode drop on Thursday, but we will be back on Monday, November 28th. So for those of you who celebrate Thanksgiving, I hope you have a joyous holiday and we'll see you on Monday, the 28th.